Hey there, it's Burke Allen in our studios in Washington, D.C., and this is the Big Time Talker Podcast, brought to you by our friends at SpeakerMatch.com. Thank you so much for downloading. We have new episodes every Tuesday at all your favorite platforms, iHeartMedia, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And we talk to incredibly interesting people, including this week's guest, who you may remember from the classic TV show, A Family Affair. You may have seen her in uh, The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, actress, author, voiceover talent, and all-around great lady Kathy Garber is here. Hey, Kathy. How you doing, Burke? It's a delight to be here. Well, the delight is mine, and I want to ask you about all those things, but I want to rewind all the way back to your very first movie role, because I learned that uh, Night of the Hunter is coming out on 4K Ultra High Def and Blu-ray over the Memorial Day 2023 weekend, and and I imagine you'll get a huge royalty check from your work on that as a child actress, right? <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I <laughs> did participate in the documentary for it, which will be, I think, one of the special little perks that you get when you get the DVD. And that's coming out this weekend in, in ultra high def. And I'm always fascinated by folks that do what you do for a living. And you started so young, you know, for, for the rest of us, Little kid memories are sort of spaced out and not really firm. And sometimes they're based around photos in a, a, you know, a photo album. What do you remember about your first time on the movie set that maybe is divorced from what you've seen in, you know, in the movie later? Do you have really strong memories? Because you were so young. Well, yes. And actually, I have a, a couple comments on what you said. I I am forever grateful to my parents up to this day for um, showing me so many different things as I was growing up and and putting me in dance school and letting me go one, one summer to a museum uh, in Los Angeles where I took an art class. And all of these things that I learned that I'm still experiencing and doing today, I hark back to to the times when I was a child and I say, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that, you know, Mr. Beamish made me learn how to multiply and add um, <laughs> five and eight and and all of that. Um, as a child for my my entertainment career, when I was just three years old, I started singing and dancing at the Medlin Studios. But the movie itself, and I think that children not only experience just by through their sight, but especially so through their senses. Right. And so the touch and the feel of things, the colors stay in that that memory box and, um, you know, further complicate all the files that we have in our text memories that you have to go through to find something. Um, And so. When my first day on on the set, and I I remember it vividly, in in many of those central aspects, um, was at RKO, and I was wearing a turquoise pair of capri pants and a turquoise top with, with a white belt. And as soon as I got into stage, because what I was was the double um, for Sally Jane Bruce. She was a little girl that was hired in this incredible movie that starred Robert Mitchum, Shelley Winters, Lillian Gish, Peter Graves. Billy Chapin was a little boy who was Lauren Chapin's brother in Father Knows Best. 
And this, this little girl, Jane Bruce, who was just six years old, had never done anything. But Charles Lawton, who was the director, his first and last picture that he ever did. Because Famous actor, but the, he was a director on this. Exactly. You know, from The Hunchback of Notre Dame, he was uh, famous for that. And um, But this, he thought that he would try to direct. And it got such bad reviews that he never, never did another film. It has turned out to be this great big cult film. Everybody loves it. It was way sure. ahead of its time. It's in the top, like, 50 of the, the greatest psychological horror thrillers that has ever been filmed. So I was, you know, excited to be a part of it because Sally was only six and I had been at Mrs. Meglin's for, since I was three and knew how to sing and dance and act and talk and do all those things. Um, I did all the scenes that she could not. And the first thing that, that I did was going into this dank cellar and there's this crazed preacher and that was pray, played by Robert Mitchum. Mitchum, sure. Oh, that had. Have you ever seen the the, the film? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, great. But that must have scared the crap out of you as a little kid. I had two older brothers, <laughs> 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 and we used to wrestle. And I, I'm a pretty sturdy and hardy uh, person and kid. So, and nothing really scared me. To, I was very, I was a safe person. I, I didn't expect the world to to give me any bad things. I expected good things. Uh, and so I had that kind of mentality and my mom was right there and I was just fascinated. I thought it was just so exciting, A, to be there and there's this whole scenario and a basement. A basement has always been appealing to me. How much fun to go in the basement, see what's there. <laughs> <laughs> so here was a basement and I knew it and I knew it was play acting because I was I was eight. Sally was only six. Okay. And, Seven is the age of reason, supposedly. Um, so I, my, I, I have that sensibility to differentiate between, you know, something real and not real. So uh, Billy Chapin and I were supposed to be hiding in this basement uh, behind the, the the coal pile when all of a sudden this this deranged person crazy comes man comes out. out. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, you know, and, and he had L-O-V-E and H-A-T-E written on his hands. And Robert Mitchum was very convincing and was a little bit over the top, which made it even more uh unrealistic, knowing okay. that he was putting it on because I'd see him off the set and he wasn't like that. So action starts, and even though that was my first action, I said, Oh, okay. <laughs> I did not expect all of when he come, came down into the cellar, all of the jelly jam glasses to come crashing down on the floor. Well, that was a surprise. But, you know, the reactions were true. Sure. And they had used the spray uh, to make cobwebs all over. So I knew they weren't real cobwebs and they weren't real spiders because I saw them spraying that thing. But it sure did smell strange. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Eight years old. And you're there with with uh, Robert Mitchum and and all of these huge stars of the day. When you look back on that. Do you have a, a sort of a favorite memory or, or a memory that that cements it all? Like, did you go to the, the premiere or what's the big memory of that movie as an eight year old? Well, you know, just as you said that a, a whole plethora of memories present themselves. And I had lots and lots of 
of memories. I did go to the after party. And <laughs> one of the scenes is when um, the, the little girl's supposed to be in the hayloft and we're hiding again from the evil preacher. So I did all those scenes because Sally couldn't really climb the ladder and et cetera, et cetera. And that was the very end of the of the picture with some of the last scenes. So we went to the after party. I have one of the most treasured things that I own was the actual book, The Night of the Hunter. And it and I went to the after party. I had everybody sign it. Uh, Charles Lawson, I still have it. Oh, yes. It's one of my favorite, and as I say, my treasured uh, mementos. And Lillian Gish and, and everybody. Wow. But I also had hay fever. Uh. <laughs> With my nose running, my eyes, you know, watering. But I was I was there. And that was from doing the hay loft scene. And but, how old were you when you did the, the Ten Commandments? You were how old then? Right after that. I was still eight. I You're was eight years old. You did back to yeah. back. Okay. Yeah. Right. I, I slipped in a, a television show, Armis Brooks, and played a little Italian girl. At that time, I had dark hair, and it. And so, way back when, I, you know, anybody could play anybody, and so uh, in the uh, in the Night of the Hunter, I I played this girl with curly hair and then straight hair as she progressed down the the river scenes, and then I played an Italian little girl in Armis Brooks, and then I played um, a Hebrew, and we had dark makeup. Put all over us uh, in, in the Ten Commandments, which is another sensual thing that little kids remember. I remember the cold and I remember the itchiness and the scratchiness of the, of the makeup, the, the sponges, yeah, yeah. The sponges. And uh, so it was, uh, uh, yeah, so that just happened right after. After uh, So I slipped in Armis Brooks and then did Ten Commandments. You know, it's so interesting you say that and you talk about sensory as a kid because as a little boy i played a native american in a, a theatrical production and they put this sort of red clay dirt makeup on with the sponges i haven't thought about that in 50 years until you brought it up so that's how you have a touchstone to remember these things that happened to you when you were a kid um pretty amazing kathy garver is our guest today on the big time talker podcast she's an author as well as an actress you got to check out her website kathygarver.com and that's kathy with a K. Now, most of us became aware of you. Um, and those of us of a certain age had a crush on you um, because of your show, uh, A Family Affair, which was, was it 66, 67 when that show premiered? 66, 66 to 71 were its original years. And um, if you don't remember the show, it was a huge hit. Brian Keith was Uncle Bill and Sebastian Cabot was uh, was his uh, his guy, Mister French, and and there was you, and there was Buffy and Jody, and and the doll that every little girl wanted. The doll, what was the name of the doll? Mrs. Beasley. Mrs. Beasley, which became uh, a huge thing. It was the Cabbage Patch doll of its day, um, and yet that show, of course, it lived on in syndication for for generations after that, uh, and it was on after school every day you know, in the 1970s and on into the 80s, that show was very um, wholesome and straight-laced. And yet the world around you, to paint that picture of 1966 to 71, was a whole different 
world. And you're a, a freshman in college, I read, whenever you got that job. So t- talk to me about the the difference of what the set was like versus what's happening in the outside world with Vietnam and the racial strife and and just the, you know, sort of America in turmoil then. Yes, there was much chaos going on in from 1966 to 1971. And our focus was coming into the great big movie set. And most things at, at that time were done in movie sets. And it didn't have all the mobile locations that so many television and movies use now. Right. So it was a, not even an oasis because I don't think the, the focus was so much on getting the job done. And like, I would go to the set at 6 a.m. And I would, I, I was the, the workhorse of the series because Brian Keith had the same kind of deal that Fred McMurray had for My Three Sons, which was all under the Federson method. Don Federson was the producer of both of those shows. And at that time, it was very difficult to get a movie star to come and do like a little television show. And so Federson made uh, like Fred McMurray and then Brian Keith, the deal that they could not refuse. And that was that they would only have to work like two and a half months out of the whole year to do 38 episodes. So basically halftime. So the big stars of the show were there halftime. How did you guys as kids, how, how did you film around that? How'd you make that work? Well, we would do all the scenes that Brian was in at the beginning, which meant that we'd be, um, you know, shooting scenes from four different shows in one day. It kept the script supervisor and wardrobe supervisor very much on their toes. Sometimes I thought we were doing a ballet. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so we would just memorize those lines for that particular day. All the scripts had to be made um, before we started the season. And it, it it amuses me today that says, oh, wow, we, we got picked up for our second season. Well, the first season was only eight episodes. You yeah. know? So it wasn't just really whoop-de-doo because we did 38 episodes in a season. And all those um, those scripts had to be finished before we even started during, and we started in the summer to get them all ready and, and shot through the fall. So we would shoot all the scenes that Brian was in, and then he would leave and go off and do... Um, and Golden Eye with uh, Elizabeth Taylor or Krakatoa East of Java. or Whatever the movie was. Yeah. yeah. So then we would pick up all the, the other scenes for to, to make up the difference to complete one whole episode. So, Kathy, you were a, a young adult then. You were 19, 20, you know, in your early 20s when you did the show. So as I think this through, you had Brian Keith, who's there halftime, and then you've got two little kids who are also on the set, um, you know, Jody and Buffy. And so how did you, cause they couldn't work all the time either. Right. You probably had to have stand-ins for the little kids while they're in school. Right. And we all had stand-ins, um, but they could only work like eight hours. And one of those hours was for lunch. And then they had to go to school for three hours. So essentially they really only worked for four hours and they would take them out of school the way that it works you know, for the kids under 18, that you have to be with your teacher for at least 20 minutes. And then they can pluck you out and say, okay, now we're doing this scene. And then they'd send them back to school until the the whole uh, three hours of school was completed. 
but not for you. You're there. It sounds to me like, uh, you know, not to put a big rest, red S on your chest and make you Superman or Superwoman, but you are there probably all the time, right? All the time. Yeah, yeah. I was was there from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And poor Sebastian had some medical uh, issues. So, um, yeah, I was I was there and and happy to be so I was, you know, young and vital and and, you know, had lots of energy and it was great. Um, Were there, you know, protests uh, and were there uh, at that time hippies and, and, you know, racial strife and all that? that you as a young person who was a, you know, a college student at all that you sort of participated in outside of, of the character of, that you played on the show, who was, again, since he was sort of this straight-laced young lady, was the, the real Kathy Garber in her early 20s different than that character? Not really. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, okay. All right. Yeah. No, I mean, really, there was absolutely no time. And um, we had, we touched upon some of those themes in in some of the episodes themselves. So there was a time where Sissy wanted to be a hippie. And so she went to visit with her friends and then she came, you know, she comes in and they're all kind of laying around and not doing anything and, you know, kind of smoking and and uh anyway that episode and, and people can see it. But I try and Uncle Bill was a very actually he was a very good parent and I learned a lot from him subliminally when I even had, when I had my own uh, child and, uh, and the way that, okay, you want to do that, go test it out. Oh, okay. And then you can see for yourself, the results of that. Or when I went to get my first apartment or when I wanted to join the Peace Corps. And so we test, you know, we, we, we touched on some of those themes, but it was never in a violent or, uh, in a way, I I never like Sissy never carried uh, a sign. I did uh, about a couple months, a couple years ago. <laughs> now that I'm a senior seasoned citizen, I got <laughs> sign out and say, "Wait a minute." Um, so I, I I've done that a couple times, but I never did it when I was young. I, you know, as I say, I was there from six to six at night, and uh, then uh, had to learn my lines for the next day. And then when the season was over, I went back to school. I went to UCLA back to and took at that time, then they changed it to quarter season it, semesters. And I was able to take uh, uh, my classes then and, and finish it up. And even at UCLA, I mean, I, I remember one time at UCLA and people were yelling and protesting. Oh, we don't have any free speech. This is just awful. We, and I said, excuse me, I mean, you're able to protest. That means you have free speech. What are you even talking about? That's ridiculous. So that was my my protest against protesters. You know, Kathy Garber calls him out. I like it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hey, uh, as much as as you can remember, and I'm sure a lot of this is is easier to recall because you were a little bit older. um, Give me a couple of words to describe your castmates as you remember them from that time. So how would you describe Brian Keith? Um, virile, masculine, sensitive. Um, Those words don't necessarily go together. That's interesting. Well, yes. And that's what made him so good. You know, he was this macho man and with a wonderful sensitivity and he loved children and he adopted three children. He, he loved children. He had no patience at all 
were people he did not like, <laughs> um, whether they be male or female. And, you know, a couple of them had came come on to the set. And if he didn't like them, he'd just kind of turn his head and mumble away. And uh, so, <laughs> But that was Brian. And Brian was very much of a man who he was. He hated publicity. And he was he was a really down to earth, fabulous, wonderful, talented person. Always loved his voice. I just thought he had this great gravelly voice. And you know, when he got older, he did a lot of the voiceovers for uh, Wells Fargo and yep. other things. Yeah. Yep, sure did. What about Sebastian Cabot? How would you describe Sebastian Cabot? Well, he was the same kind of maybe duplicitous person. Um, the couple a couple of words. He was professional, dedicated. A uh, family person, very warm. So uh, I went over to his house a couple times, and he, you know, on on when he was on the set, he was, you know, wearing his uniform, and everything was very stiff and like this. You come had the bowler, the hat. yeah, 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 and then he had like sweats on, laying around, <laughs> just yeah, polar opposites. Uh, what about the the little kids, Johnny Whitaker? What was he like as a kid? Um, obedient, um, probably that, that's the main, main thing. He came from a family of seven brothers and sisters and he, um, was Mormon. And so he, uh, he had this value system. I would, and I would say even as a child, maybe judgmental for other people. Interesting. Okay. And the young lady who played Buffy and Nissa Jones. Um, tell me about her. Adorable, um, smart, very caring for other people, very generous, and an atheist. Even as a little one? As a little one. Uh, her, her mother was divorced, and, and she had one older brother who did a couple of the couple episodes. So that it made for... Uh, an interesting contrast between Johnny and, and Anissa because Anissa was an atheist even as a child and Johnny, you know, was, was a Mormon. So yeah, is a they were kids and, and uh, so they got along. And, uh, you know, as a kid who grew up in the 70s, when, when Anissa Jones passed, that was a big cautionary tale. It was a big, you know, aha moment. I know that that generally speaking, when you you work with someone very closely and then that work ends, you don't necessarily stay uh, in touch, but I, I wonder if you remember where you were um, and what was happening in your life when you heard that she passed away. Well, I had gone to her 18th birthday party and uh, her mother had come up to me and she said, Kathy, I wish you'd spend a little more time with Anissa because I think she's gotten into the wrong crowd. And I said, I would love to, but you know what? I'm leaving right now to go to Virginia to uh, do My Fair Lady in a musical and I said, as soon as I get back, I certainly will. And as it turned out, during that time when I was gone is when she took the overdose. What a tragic end uh, to that young lady. And, and at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned your parents and having really good you know, parental guidance and strong role models. I wonder how much, uh, as you look back on your career and on your life, you think that that has made a difference for you as opposed to a lot of the the other young people that that really struggle with child stardom? Absolutely. One, 100%. Yeah. One of the books that I wrote was Ex-Child Stars. And I said, you know, one of the reasons, two of the reasons, three of the reasons 
that some of these kids, after they finish a series, so go off the rail or don't know what to do is because, A, the, the parents had not saved any of their money. And right. when they're 18, like even Johnny it was tithing for his whole family, my parents saved every single penny. Not only that, they gave me advice on how to uh, invest it, which was very, very good. Because so many people, you know, think, oh, this is just art and, and acting. It's show business. And they recognize that. And they were very good about saving it and helping me invest it. Two, so many of them didn't get in, uh, an education and uh, when they they um, were older. And of, I I started as a child, but, you know, I went to, to UCLA, got a degree in speech and psychology. That's why we both are big talkers. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, and then a, and a master's in theater arts. But that education is very, very important. Sure. Um, and then... A lot of them did not learn how to be adult actors. There is a big difference being a child actor and just being cute and knowing, you know, and saying your lines and, and hitting your mark. Okay. And they, the producers and directors want the kids to be as natural as possible. Well, that doesn't really work in the adult world. You have to know. A different skill set, right? It's a totally different skill set. Yeah. Yes, you have to to learn who the character is, what the setting is, the, analyze the scene, what you know, what's expected, what's your attitude, all those things that that go into making a really good actor. And the child acts well. Geez, I was on the series for six years. You you think I I don't know how to act? Yes, <laughs> it, it's it's a different world when when you're an adult. Was there an adjustment period for you in coming off that show? And as you said, you went back to school and you got your masters and. You studied the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts in London, I read, and, and all that. But was there an adjustment from, look, I'm on the set and I'm super high profile and I'm going to date you a little bit here. I'm on the cover of TV Guide or, or whatever the magazine is. And every young 1960s rock star wants to date me to that all comes to an end and the spigot gets turned off. Was there a, a tough adjustment for you then? It was an adjustment. I wouldn't say it was tough okay. um, because... Again, I had I had gone to school and I had developed all kinds of other skills. I know how to write. As you had mentioned, I've written five books yep. and I taught voiceover for like 20 years. I, I've done five animated series, Firestar and Spider-Man, His Amazing Friends. At that point, I did not have my voiceover career. And so I said, oh, now what do I do? I had been hired to go to Israel to do a stage presentation of Family Affair, Hamishpakashikazot. And so I learned Hebrew for, for this musical. Wow. And, and while I was there, I said, okay, well, I'm overseas. So I went, that's when I went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. I came back and I said, well, now what will I do? At that time, they had all these dinner theaters. That was very, very big in the 70s and 80s. So I did tons and tons of, of dinner theaters. And then I developed my voiceover career. And as, as I told my my students in voiceover, you're going to be successful in voiceover. I said, you have to learn the skills for all the different fields and the genres that are in voiceover. If you say, oh, well, I only want to do narration. I, I only want, okay, fine. You want to do narration, then, you know, good luck. I, I said, I want only audiobook. I said, okay, learn how to do audiobooks. I've, um, I've recorded like 70 audiobooks and I've won like four Audi 
awards. And actually, just this last month, I, I won the silver award from one of my latest audio renditions, which was Patty Duke's In the Presence of Greatness. She and wow. I were, were great friends. And I said, you want to do it, uh, cartoons only? Not This isn't good, you know, in, in my estimation. It's, it's nice to maybe just specialize in one of those, but you'll have a lot more work and you'll have a lot longer career if you learn how to do all of those things in, in commercials and everyday commercials and character commercials, et cetera. And you do have a very uh, diversified career and, and you're still at it and still working. Do you, do you see a time where you might retire or slow down a little bit? Cause you, you're on the move, young lady. I see you everywhere doing stuff all the time. Well, I must tell you, I'm very blessed to have two of my movies premiering in one week. And I don't know quite how that happened, but Saturday they're premiering my my new movie, uh, Yellow Bird, which has won uh, four Best Picture awards in a lot of film fest in prestigious film festivals, and it just won the uh, Best Comedy and Best Supporting uh, Actor for Brian Doyle Murray in this movie. And Saturday, it's the premiere in Los Angeles at the LA uh, Film Fest at the Regal Cinema. And then Wednesday, I'm flying to Houston for the premiere of my movie, Old Man Jackson. I play Mrs. Jackson. They're both comedies. They're both heartfelt, uh, kind of inspiring movies, which really is the genre that I like to uh, to pursue. I did think, uh, uh, my, I said, well, when am I going to retire? I said, am I going to retire when I'm 80? And I said, hey, you know what? I said I was going to retire in 72, and that didn't quite happen. So. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, here I am. Yes. What's the biggest misconception that, that folks who are not in the entertainment business have about folks who are in the entertainment business? That it's all fun and 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 glamour. And, right. um, it, and what it is is hard work. And... It's very difficult. I mean, memorizing lines and getting up early and getting going to makeup and and all of that. That sometimes is overlooked. So that's that's one misconception. And also, losing a job is like number two, I think, on the angst scale. So an actor is losing a job, you know, maybe every week. Oh, I have a guest star on NCIS, and that lasted three days. And now what? Oh, well, yeah, I, I guess I have to go in another interview and, and get another job. Am I going to get that job? Will they like me? Am I too old, too young, too fat, too thin? I mean, so. Do you feel like uh, you were typecast coming off of a family affair? No. And I'll tell you why. And and people may not remember it, me as much as the kids are saying, oh, you were on? I said, yeah, I was on every episode. Every year I changed my hair. I I really did not want to become stereotyped so one year it was uh kind of reddish and then another one it was long and another one was a side ponytail and then I cut it all off in the last uh season and if you if you look at the show you'll see that Brian always looks you know the same right Mr. French always wore the same suit Anissa always had pigtails in her little dress and Johnny always had his curly red hair but I, I was different and I was emerging. I was probably the only character, as we say now in the business, that had an arc that really showed the growth, whereas the kids were always kids. Right. Brian, you know, and I 
you know, went out of high school. I went through different boyfriends. I, I was investigating becoming an, an adult and uh, I went to Vienna in, in Wall. So you saw a, a, a little girl, basically, I was playing like a 15 year old, a young 15 year old. And I felt like a 15 year old really progressed to become a mature, lovely young woman, as far as I'm concerned. I, she, you know, I think she turned out pretty good. She turned out great. And now she does a lot of stuff. Is there in, in all of this stuff that you do between narrating audiobooks and this incredible voiceover career, which is amazing, and and all the books that you've authored and the television guest appearances and and the independent films, is there any of that in the mix that is your favorite? Like if you had to uh, let them all fall away and here's the one thing I still want to do? I would say write and uh, and appear in movies. Those are my two favorite things. Voiceover is fun, but it's over. And I like to use my whole body. I was also a dancer. So I've been dancing since I was three. And I like to use my whole body. And, and voiceover, it pays well, but it's over so quickly. So I like to dig in. And I, that's why I like a movie. Uh, and I, I love editing. I like writing in the first place, but I love editing. And I have two more books that are coming out uh, this year when I'm doing with a, a friend of mine and and he'll send me some things and I, I have so much fun. It's maybe just correcting him. I say, I think it's going to be better this way, but I, I like <laughs> to write. <laughs> hey, you mentioned uh, Spider-Man and the character that you played on the animated Spider-Man uh, cartoon series in the early 80s. With with that so hot in the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, all things superhero are big now. Do people ask you about that maybe more than than you would have expected when you did that in the 80s? Yes, very, very much so, because it's gone through a lot of machinations. And what has helped it along, you know, Disney makes most of its money, not from the actual movie or animated things, but all its ancillary things and products. And so just this last two years, Firestar has come out as a little action figure, six inch high. And then they made her an eight inch high one. And then there's a triumvirate of Firestar and uh, uh, Iceman and Spider-Man, all three packaged. And now there's a beauty, see we're not doing video, but I'll show you, you can see. And then this is one of the latest, this is a, like a 12 foot statue, a 12 inch statue Sweet. Of, of, of Firestar. And I'm surprised lately when I go to like the Hollywood show or, or Mid-Atlantic, and I'll bring some of the, the little six-inch figures, and I sign them, and oh, people like that really the most. That's very cool. Um, I did ask before the, the podcast for folks to send me questions. I've got a couple that that your fans have sent in. Um, most famous person that you met uh, in your career that, that and, and I guess what they're asking, that, that you were uh, sort of starstruck by? Well, I was first going to say Charlton Heston, which, wow. you know, was one of the Moses, 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 Moses. Yeah, he was he was pretty awesome. Yep. I wasn't starstruck by him because I was a child. And okay. so I didn't know. <laughs> I met Jimmy Darren, who is not as big a star as Charlton Heston. I was tongue tied. <laughs> so I thought, Jimmy Darren. Oh, did I love him and Sandra D? You know, I, <laughs> I said, hi. 
I mean, I couldn't say anything. And I said, Kathy, this is so like you. <laughs> well, Burke knows that you talk a lot. But I, um, yeah, it was a little bit tongue-tied. Like, oh. See? All right. Yeah. It happens even to you. All right. Uh, next question. Uh, most people know you from a family affair. Is there a project that you have done that you wish got more recognition or is underrated? Something you're really proud of maybe that you've done that you think more people should see or read or or hear? Well, I think more people should go to Audible and, and see my audiobooks. I'm very proud of the audiobooks. And as I say, they have won in awards, but I haven't really promoted them. And uh, Audible doesn't really promote them. And the, the company itself has so many books. So I, I would like more people to hear my audiobooks. That's great. And audiobooks, you, you talked about uh, it sort of being one and done. It's a lot of work that goes into reading, you know, an audiobook. If you do a 400-page novel, you, that's many, many dozens of hours uh, in the studio to get, do it right. It's a lot of work. So I like that answer. All right. And then one last question here. Uh, and this came from Ken. And Ken says, um, can you share a behind-the-scenes blooper or funny incident that you remember from a family affair when you're filming the show? Anything come to mind? Any bloopers or uh, weird things that happened on stage? Well, I remember we had this uh, AD, the assistant director, John Gaudioso, who was, he was a great Italian guy and he was just full of life and full of pranks. So one time I'm doing a, a scene and I have to get the slippers, Uncle Bill's slippers, underneath his bed. He had a cold. I was taking care of him. So I get down um, onto the floor and I reach in for the slippers to pull them out. And they don't pull out. Uh-oh. And I pull. He had nailed them to the floor. So I, I <laughs> did that. Yes, that was, those are some of those things. that John Gadioso, he did it to you. He did. Good old John. I love it. And I love this conversation. It's been delightful. Thanks for spending time with me today. Thank you, Burke. The very lovely and incredibly talented and gracious Miss Kathy Garver. You can find her online at kathygarver.com and see what she's up to. And that's Kathy with a K. And uh, thank you for making us part of your day and downloading our Big Time Talker podcast. In our studios here in Washington, D.C., I want to say thanks to speakermatch.com, our show sponsor, and thank you for listening. Now go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody.